Well, welcome to the Encephalitis podcast. I hope this finds our listeners well and like us still basking in the warm afterglow of a very successful World Encephalitis Day on the 22nd of February. We are very grateful to everyone for their support on our annual awareness campaign, which reached, and I found out this morning, so so this is um, a spoiler alert, we reached um, 111 million people uh, in 2023, which is double that which we reached the year before. Um, So that was through social media, through television, radio and online. So as Chief Executive and on behalf of all of the team at the Encephalitis Society, I want to say thank you to everybody. Now, in this edition of the Encephalitis podcast, we're going to be talking about a subject which is of particular interest to me, and that is Japanese encephalitis. March is the one year anniversary of a Japanese encephalitis outbreak in Australia, while in other countries such as India and Nepal, it's a perennial issue for many health agencies. To help me discuss all things to do with Japanese encephalitis, I've recruited Dr. Lance Turtle. Lance is a reader and honorary consultant physician in infectious diseases at the University of Liverpool, and I'm very happy to say a member of our scientific advisory panel. He's also a global uh, light in the study of viral diseases and vaccines, and particularly Japanese encephalitis. So he's absolutely the right person to speak to on this topic. Welcome to the Encephalitis podcast, Lance. Thanks, Ava. Hi. Well, look, we'll launch straight in. You know, sure. um, some of our listeners may not be familiar with Japanese encephalitis. Can, can you give us an, an overview of the infection, uh, where it's found, signs and symptoms, and maybe how it's transmitted? Yes, yeah, sure. Yeah. So Japanese encephalitis is a, uh, is a, a disease that's caused by a virus. Um, and that virus is spread to people by the bite of a mosquito. Um, and the virus is found in, in much of South and Southeast and Eastern Asia. So although the name might suggest it's got something to do with Japan, that the, the, the name um, given to the disease, which is not uncommon for, for some diseases, it's named after where it first occurred. Um, so there is actually uh, very little Japanese encephalitis in Japan now, but the virus is found throughout um, many parts of Asia, South and Southeast Asia. So there's something like probably two and a half or three billion people living in areas which are susceptible to Japanese encephalitis. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's caused by a virus. The virus is called Japanese encephalitis virus, logically enough. Um, and it belongs to a family of viruses called the Flavy viruses, and that that family gets its name from um, from Flavus, which is Latin for yellow, and it includes the yellow fever virus as well, which is in fact the first human virus ever to be isolated. Um, and these are all viruses which are spread from from or to people by mosquitoes, and they are spread from either animals or people, depending upon the virus. So in the case of Japanese encephalitis. Japanese encephalitis is rather unusual and it does not spread from person to person. What it does is it spreads from birds. It's naturally a virus of birds and it spreads from birds to people through the bite of a mosquito. Um, And it can spread through an intermediate host uh, or amplifying host, which is often a pig, although can be other domestic birds. And what happens is that because mosquitoes don't fly very far in their entire lifetime, um, the mosquitoes that bite birds may not be the same mosquitoes that bite people. But if you keep pigs, then what that does is it brings a reservoir of virus closer to people. So pigs can become infected by Japanese encephalitis virus, but they um, they, they don't get ill, although you can get um, abortion, actually, in pregnant sows. 
but what they do is they do have enough virus in them to be onwardly infectious to the mosquito. So that brings a reservoir of virus clo in the, into closer proximity to people because the kind of wild wading birds that are the natural hosts of Japanese encephalitis virus, they don't come very close to, 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 to people. But people don't have enough virus in them to, be, to, to, to transmit onwardly to mosquitoes. So mankind is a kind of dead end host. It's like an accident almost for the virus. Uh, to get into to get into people so that's how that's that's where it is and you know how it transmits and, and how it infects you and can japanese encephalitis be prevented it can be prevented yeah so i mean obviously if you prevent mosquitoes biting you that will prevent transmission that's very difficult to do in in practical reality in you know rural asia for example um, but if you live in a more uh, developed setting, then especially during seasons of transmission, then it is a bit more practical. You know, if you live in a house where you can keep the windows shut and things, or you can wear mosquito repellent, you can prevent it. Um, and there are vaccines available as well. There are several vaccines available, um, and they're all effective in, in preventing the disease. How safe are those vaccines? The vaccines are extremely safe. I mean, the vaccines are, are, are not used in, in, in large numbers outside Asia. Uh, within Asia, um, there's been a, a Chinese vaccine used a lot, which is actually not really available outside Asia. So that the vaccine which has had the most sort of clinical experience will, won't be available to people uh, uh, unless they're residents of those Asian, Asian countries. But there are a couple of vaccines on the international market which are both extremely safe. There used to be a vaccine derived from, which was made from mouse brain. Um, and that was associated with some uh, adverse events. But that's been phased out now. It's been replaced by, by two different vaccines, which are both um, sort of basically tissue culture, laboratory grown virus, which is then inactivated. And those are extremely safe. I mean, I'm not aware of any uh, you know, serious adverse events that have occurred with, with those vaccines. They're called Ixiaro, is the one that you would get in, in Europe. And in, in um, New Zealand and Australia, there's one called Imogev. Um, I mean, neither of those vaccines have been used in, 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 in very large numbers of people, like millions and millions of people, but they've certainly been used in you know, tens of thousands of doses and they're extremely safe. And how long does immunity last for someone who's been vaccinated? So I mean, that's a good question. I don't think we really truly know the answer to that. In, in, in endemic areas, you give two doses, one or two doses of vaccine, depending upon which vaccine you use. And that's usually enough. But in endemic areas, people are constantly re-stimulated uh, with the virus because they're exposed, you know, uh, or, like throughout much of their childhood, for example. Um, in in travellers, then it, you, 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 if you have two doses, then within about a year, antibody levels start to start to wane. And the recommendation is you then have another dose after one year. There's no real recommendation after that. Um, it, it's probably the case. Uh, like it is with a lot of these things, where if you have some immunity, that's probably enough. Um, and actually, if you've had two or three doses of vaccine, you probably don't need another, and, and you'll mount a faster immune response should you become uh, infected. I should point out that Imogev, which is the vaccine available in Australia and New Zealand, is a single dose. And Ixiaro, the primary course, is, uh, is two doses. But in fact, I mean, most people that get infected will fight it off themselves and never know they're infected. So a number of people who, I mean, in rural Asia, the number of people who get uh, infected for every case of disease is about between 300 and 1,000 to one. So the vast majority of people are not going to get sick 
anyway. What vaccination does is it takes that small number of people who are susceptible and it turns them into people who become infected without knowing and never get any disease. So some people can, if I understand you correctly, can get Japanese encephalitis virus, but actually not become very poorly with it. It's only yeah. a small number of people that will become very poorly. Correct. Um, yeah, ne nearly what? everyone. Nearly everyone, mm. actually. Um, why is there not an antiviral drug for yeah. it? So there's not an antiviral drug. There have been a few drugs tested and none of them have, have, have worked. Um, one reason is there are not many cases in, in places where you can do clinical trials. So it's hard to test treatments. Um, another reason is that, in, again, in rural Asia, where most of the disease takes place, patients often present to hospital quite late. You know, they fall ill uh, and then and then they, they, they get, you know, they get a febrile illness first and then encephalitis develops later. And by the time they come to hospital, they've got established inflammation in the brain. Uh, and often much of the brain damage that's going to happen has already happened. And, and it's a bit late to, uh, to, to actually give effective antiviral treatments. Um, so there have been a few trials. The, 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 the trials that have been done have all been rather small. I would say, and they, 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 they would really have only detected a very large treatment benefit. And because people come late, that benefit may not be you know, particularly realistic. Um, so antiviral treatments for Japanese encephalitis are not looking, there is really nothing on the horizon uh, for that um, at the moment. But in terms of managing patients with the illness, the kind of supportive treatment, like keeping people hydrated, fluid, preventing pneumonia, pressure sores and things, those are all very effective uh, strategies for management. So it is, it is, there are lots of things you can do to improve the outcome, but there's no specific antiviral treatment. And how, if a patient becomes very poorly with Japanese encephalitis, how are they diagnosed? So they're diagnosed usually by um, taking a sample of spinal fluid uh, with the cerebrospinal fluid doing what's called a spinal tap and then in that spinal fluid you could find antibodies against Japanese encephalitis virus and that, that is the that is the best way that is the kind of most tried and tested way of uh, of diagnosing it I think in the Australian outbreak that's happened last year there have been um, more uh, instances of detection of the virus using the PCR test like the test you have when you do a COVID swab um, which is which is a sensitive test if there is virus present, but the virus that's in people when they get clinical Japanese encephalitis tends to be in the brain and that's hard to get at. So you, you quite often don't find um, virus. But I, I think that um, in Australia, there's been a bit more found than, than you would normally find in, 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 in sites in, in Asia. And that's probably because of the, um, the kind of sample transport infrastructure that exists in Australia, which might be better than in, in rural parts of Asia, which is where the bulk of the kind of burden of this disease actually actually falls. And what happens? What are the outcomes for people who become infected by Japanese encephalitis virus? Well, so uh, like I've said before, the majority of people will get nothing. Nothing will happen. Um, so that's kind of reassuring, you know, for most people that exposure itself is not a particularly dangerous event. However, if you get the illness, the illness can then be very severe indeed. Um, so uh, the, the number of people who die from the illness is a bit variable between studies and settings. Um, but in, in, if, you, if you average all that together in Asia over about the last 30 years, it's probably about 18 to 20 percent 
of people die. And I believe in the Australian outbreak, there have been seven deaths out of 45 cases. So that's about 15 percent. So still a pretty substantial number. Um, and then those who recover from the infection, um, some of them recover very well with, with not very much in the way of residual uh, problems or residual damage to the brain or nervous system. But unfortunately, quite a substantial group, probably around 40 to 50 percent, something like that. Again, the numbers are variable between different studies, but quite a substantial proportion will have, uh, unfortunately, long term problems as a consequence of the infection and their brain may not recover to uh, to what it was beforehand. And those manifestations can be very, very variable with Japanese encephalitis. People might have difficulties in memory. They might have what we call focal neurological deficits or focal damage to parts of the brain, which means an arm doesn't work or a leg doesn't work. It can cause a sort of semi-paralysis, uh, a bit like polio can with residual weakness of the legs. Um, it can cause a Parkinson's-like illness. Uh, you might be left with epilepsy or seizures afterwards. So very, very variable uh, is the answer. And, and, those, and some of those problems can be very severe. And, you know, and as you know, I mean, we've seen cases in the UK who've had really terrible outcomes with being left dependent on a ventilator and unable to feed properly. And, you know, it's a really life-changing disease, potentially, in, in a small proportion of people. And, and just to clarify, those cases in the UK, they're from people who've travelled to areas where Japanese encephalitis um, is, is more Correct. prevalent. Correct. Yeah, um, yeah. Before I ask you um, a couple of questions specifically about the outbreak in Australia, I just wanted to touch upon, you know, you're really a leader in the field of Japanese encephalitis. What does your research at the University of Liverpool involve? So what we're working on at the moment is mostly vaccines uh, against Japanese encephalitis. And we are, uh, I mean, vaccines against Japanese encephalitis exist and are very effective, but there are a number of related viruses which don't have vaccines. And what we're looking at is how to make better vaccines, which can give you broader protection against other viruses in the same family. So, I mean, JE is a well-established clinical problem, but there are other viruses that can do similar things. And what we worry is that those viruses have a potential to emerge um, and cause similar problems, uh, as you see with JE. So we're interested in developing better vaccination strategies that can protect against multiple different members you know, of the same family. I mean, Murray Valley encephalitis is another virus which you find in Australia, which is not doesn't have a vaccine. And the reason it doesn't have a vaccine is it's just there's just not enough of it to, to do the kind of studies uh, into developing a vaccine. But for those people that get it, it can still be devastating. So we're interested in trying to develop strategies of vaccination where you can cover more than one virus at a time. And therefore, you can you can develop something that might be useful to those people that get relatively infrequent diseases uh, of the same kind of family of Japanese encephalitis. Well, thank you. One of the main reasons, um, as we mentioned before, for choosing to cover Japanese encephalitis in this month's podcast is that it marks this first anniversary, really, of the outbreak in Australia. Um, what can you tell us about the outbreak and, and why is it important for people in Australia going forward? Yeah, so I mean, so Japanese encephalitis has been kind of knocking on the door of Australia for quite some years. Um, it, it, it probably evolved originally in Indonesia. Um, which is so it's, the virus is broken down into different genotypes, different types of the virus, which are closely related, but can be differentiated based on their genetic information. 
Um, and the the all there were five of these types, and th those five types are, are are found all in Indonesia and elsewhere in Asia. You find, you know, uh, subsets of that. Um, so in in um, uh, in in Australia, there there was really no Japanese encephalitis for a long time, although it was quite close by. It was in Bali in Indonesia, which isn't that far away. And there was the odd case in um, the Torres Straits in the islands. And I think there was even the odd virus isolation in the far northern Australian mainland, thought to be by either mosquitoes that are blown by wind or birds that have carried the virus over and then been bitten by mosquitoes. Uh, and there had been some virus introductions, but there had been no cases of disease on, in, on mainland Australia. I think there might have been one. Uh, you know, about 20 years ago, so not very many. And then last year, suddenly there were, I think, 45 cases. And so, of course, what that means, if if only about one in 300 infections is actually symptomatic, then what that means is there have been whatever 45 times 300 is. I can't do that on the fly, but it's thousands, you know, of of infections. So ha there having been possibly one or two, or a, 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 like a tiny handful before. Suddenly there was a big change, um, and there and there now will have been many, many more infections than than just 45. And um, so that and and they've been discovered much, much further. I think it's southeast uh, of 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 where they had been previously up in the northern territories. So so what that means is that the, the it's likely the virus has become established on the Australian mainland now. Um, whereas previously it wasn't. Previously it was definitely established in Indonesia and Bali. There have been a number of cases, for example, in Australian tourists visiting Bali and from other nations, uh, but it wasn't established on the Australian mainland. I mean, we knew that conditions conducive to this kind of virus, mosquito-transmitted viruses, exist in Australia because you have things like Murray Valley encephalitis virus transmission. You have Ross River, various other, and there's dengue, of course, in northern Australia. Um, so, so we know that Australia has a, a suitable climate for mosquito-transmitted viruses, but Japanese encephalitis virus was not, didn't have a firm foothold on the Australian mainland. Whereas now it seems that it does, which is a significant, you know, change in terms of uh, virus circulation in Australia. So, when you say a firm foothold, that is is that what people are referring to now when some health experts are suggesting that it's now endemic in Australia? Uh, that's right. Yeah, I think that's likely. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think I would some some people might prefer the term enzootic in Australia. So technically speaking, that that means and I, I say that because I've had referees of my own papers you know, pick up on these on these terms. It's slightly pedantic, but enzootic means it circulates in animals in an area Whereas endemic technically means it's established in the human population and of course remember that that actually um this is not a virus that spreads human to human so technically speaking and i i may well have used the word endemic you know myself already uh, you know technically <laughs> wrongly but actually it would be it would be established in in the bird population um in 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 australia that and if and if it, got, it gets permanently if indeed it is permanently established in the bird population then it may be a permanent feature now of uh, uh that that virus is now present in australia and of course, the important thing about that is that if it's spreading from bird to bird and those birds are living you know, well away from people, you won't see that in human cases. So you can't look at humans and say, well, we haven't seen a case for six months, therefore the virus is gone. It may be the virus is not gone. It just means that it's circulating at some level, maybe a low level in the wild bird population. Um, but that for various geographic climactic reasons, 
those birds or the mosquitoes feeding on those birds have not come close enough to people or close enough to pigs or to people uh, in order to, to, to mean there have been transmission events into people. So do you think it's going to be relatively straightforward then for viruses such as Japanese encephalitis to spread to other new areas, to new countries that they haven't been known previously? I think we've seen a consistent pattern of that over the last 20 years or 25 years. I mean, you know, we know that the world is changing, that climate change is increasing temperatures. Increasing temperatures makes it easier for mosquitoes to survive and it makes it easier for them to transmit viruses because it reduces what's called the extrinsic incubation time of a virus, which is the time from a mosquito biting an infected host to that mosquito itself becoming infectious with the virus. It's not a passive process. What happens is the mosquito takes a blood meal, it gets the virus, the virus replicates in the mosquito and gets to high enough levels the mosquito can then transmit it. And as temperature rises, that process becomes faster because the virus can replicate faster. Um, but we've seen, for example, the introduction of West Nile virus to the United States, very significant event. We've seen increasing numbers of West Nile cases in Eastern Europe. Uh, we've seen um, a big explosion in dengue cases in Europe last year. We've seen transmission of dengue virus in Europe on a few occasions. I mean, that has happened in the past, but it's happened a lot more recently. Uh, we saw the emergence of Zika virus in the Americas in 2014 and 15. So, and we've seen you know more and larger yellow fever outbreaks in Africa in, over the last sort of uh, you know 10 to 15 years as well. So, I mean, I would argue that the early 20th century has been marked by several events of emergence or spread of mosquito transmitted viruses. So the, the, the general term is arboviruses, arthropod born, and arthropod is a joint legged creature. So, um, so arthropod born virus or arbovirus is the kind of umbrella term for, for, for all of these infections. And we've seen several, and I think that there's a continual risk of, of future emergence, which is why I study um, vaccination and in particular vaccination against viruses which perhaps haven't yet got a big disease burden but which might have the future potential to emerge because the problem is a virus emerges and then you know there's a big race to make a vaccine and then the virus is gone by the time the vaccine comes out. I mean, Zika would be a good example of that. We had a massive Zika outbreak in 2014-15. We still haven't got a licensed vaccine for example. Wow. So uh, really important. It's, um, um, you know, it sounds like we're still not learning the lessons that that preceded COVID-19 with outbreaks of SARS and MERS, for example. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I don't think that an arbovirus would ever have the potential to do the same thing that COVID-19 has done because they're, they're, there's an intermediate vector. So you, you, don't, you, can't, you don't get direct human-to-human -human spread. I mean, all you need for COVID-19 transmission is people to be close to each other, which is you know, ubiquitous everywhere. Uh, so, so an arbovirus, I think, doesn't have the same, quite the same potential. But you know, an arbovirus that causes severe neurological disease, severe brain disease, and can kill you or leave lasting brain damage, and particularly one that does that in children, you know, which many of them do, I think has the potential, despite the fact it would cause far fewer cases, to still be you know, a, a significant public health concern. 
At the beginning of March, um, Victoria's health department said that Japanese encephalitis may have infected as many as one in 30 people in northern parts of the state. And I find that quite worrying. Um, while in other areas, such as New South Wales and South Australia, they're also continuing to report cases. But I guess that goes back maybe to what you were talking about earlier, which is many more people can become infected, but not necessarily very poorly with it. Yes, that, that, that's exactly right. I mean, that reflects the amount of transmission that is happening, in, you know, it, from from the animal reservoir to people in that setting. I, I, I forget which state you mentioned there. I don't know the I don't know the, the size of the population of the state. I don't know how many people that is. Um, but uh, I mean, uh, you know, as we've already discussed, whatever forty five times you know three hundred is is the number of people that that are likely to have been infected in Australia. So that would be a large number, much larger than, than the number of cases. I mean, that, that what I think is concerning is the cases rather than the, the, the number of infections per se. I mean, the people who have silent infection, that, I mean, that's not a health problem. Those people have been infected. They fought the virus off. They're probably immune and they don't need to worry about it anymore so so that that you know those people should you know someone who discovers they've been asymptomatically infected shouldn't worry they they for them they're in the clear they're, they're the one group of people who don't need to worry because they've had it and they've fought it off and they've not been sick um, it's the people who either are sick or who could get sick in the future who are the ones to to worry about you mentioned earlier as well um, Murray Valley encephalitis, another mosquito-borne um, uh, encephalitis. Um, um, I mean, what what can or what are the Australian authorities doing to combat mosquitoes going forward? Is that is that an option in in dealing with Japanese encephalitis so in Murray Valley? It's a challenge to do that. I, I, I confess I'm not. I don't know the details of the Australian public health response to, to some of these infections. I mean, Murray Valley has been there for many, many years, but in a very low number of cases. And I think that, um, uh, you know, a large public health response to a small frequency, low frequency infection, even if that infection is very devastating, is still, you know, it's not a particularly cost effective uh, thing to do and there are other forms of encephalitis as you well know which are probably just as damaging or more in the Australian population like herpes simplex which is globally the kind of most frequently occurring kind of encephalitis. Um, I mean avoiding mosquito bites um, is difficult. It's possible uh, and in a developed country like Australia that that, that is possible but it's, it's very hard to do. I mean in in the areas where you get most of the burden of Japanese encephalitis like rural Asia uh, you know, avoiding mosquitoes is just not realistic. Um, so in terms of the the specific public health response in in, in Australia, uh, I mean, at person to person level or at individual level, people can take measures to try and avoid being bitten, but you can't you can't eradicate mosquitoes from 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 a region. It's ju it's just not practical. It's impossible. And what what should what measures should people be taking to avoid being bitten? Um, any top tips? So the the I mean I guess the first thing is to know your local um, epidemiology and transmission. And, and JE is is to some extent a seasonal disease, and and it's that seasonality is driven in part by bird migration and in part by kind of mosquito numbers and rainfall and, and, and things like that. So so I guess the first thing is to understand when in your location the cases are occurring. Um, and then when they are occurring is to take measures to, to avoid mosquito bites. So we saw a lot of this in the US 
for example, in response to the West Nile virus, which is another virus of the same family, causes a similar kind of illness. Um, and so, so what can you do? I mean, you can wear long sleeve clothing, you can cover yourself in mosquito repellent, you can stay indoors, you can stay under a net behind a screen. Um, you know, the extent to which those are really practical depends a bit on what you're doing. If you're on an outdoor camping trip or hiking where you're sweating buckets and you're wearing shorts and a t-shirt because it's hot uh, and you're sweating off your mosquito repellent and you're staying in a tent, uh, you know, that's more challenging. Well, looking beyond um, Australia, um, we touched upon this before, Japanese encephalitis is endemic in many rural areas of Southeast Asia, the Pacific Islands and the Far East. What would you recommend to anyone who's concerned about becoming infected, whether they live in those areas or whether they're considering traveling to those areas? So if you're traveling, then then my recommendation is you get health advice, specific health advice before you travel um, and you have a risk assessment as to uh, your need for Japanese encephalitis vaccine. Um, and the, the, that risk assessment will will depend on things like how long you're going for and what you're doing and what kind of risk you will you will put yourself at. Uh, I mean, the risk of acquiring Japanese encephalitis for travellers is low, but the consequences can be very severe. So you have to you have to weigh up. It's quite a difficult sort of risk benefit, you know, calculation uh, uh, for that kind of thing. And and it's really a, a um, it comes down to sort of personal attitude to risk. Uh, I mean, I would always be vaccinated, and I would always advocate being vaccinated. But that's because, uh, well, number one, I think the vaccines are very safe. Um, and, and there's really not much risk um, inherent in those. And number two, I, I've seen the disease and I think the disease is terrible. Um, mm. But for every person I've seen with the disease, there will be thousands who go and have no ill effects at all. So whether they're vaccinated or not. So those are those are, you know, um, very much individual decisions. And the important thing is to get good advice and, and undertake a risk assessment. And then what you do with that risk assessment depends a bit on your own attitude to risk. But I guess what I would say to people is just remember that even though the, the disease is a low frequency event, it really is life changing. You know, if you if you have a if you have a kind of you know high flying intellectual academic job and you get Japanese encephalitis, your life as you know it will be probably forever changed, I think, uh, even though it's a low chance event. So you have to weigh up this you know, this difficult equation of of a very severe disease versus a relatively low chance of developing it. And that's why you and I are vaccinated, because we, we have and are working with these patients. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So if you talk um, to patients who've seen patients, they'll all say get vaccinated because they've seen the disease and they know how awful it is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? But anyway, yeah, yeah. hopefully things like this podcast can help. Look, um, we're, we're at, at the end of this podcast and I will bring it to a close, um, as I always do, by asking you if there's anything else that you'd like to say or discuss or wish that I'd asked you. Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think people should be unduly worried. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's the number of cases is small, you know, compared with the whole Australian population and travellers probably need to worry even less. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I, I, I say that at the same time as fully acknowledging that it's a, you know, it's a very nasty illness. And for those affected, uh, they will they will feel very differently about that. And for those those people who unfortunately, sadly, have died of the infection, obviously, that's you know, that's a great tragedy. And, um, you know, we hope that number stays as low as, as possible. 
Yeah. And as you and I both know, also the profound impact on the families of, of people um, that have been affected by Japanese yeah. and colitis. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, on that note, thank you, Lance, for taking the time to join us on the Encephalitis podcast. And of course, thank you as ever to all of our listeners of the Encephalitis podcast. As ever, the Encephalitis Society remains at your service. So if you need any support or information, our teams are always there for you. You can go to encephalitis.info for contact details or to chat online. We hope you've um, enjoyed this podcast. And as always, if you can support our life-saving work, we would be extremely grateful. Please visit encephalitis.info forward slash donate. And we'll see you on the next Encephalitis podcast in around about a month's time. Thank you.